Hello and welcome to Time to Unwind, the Watch Gecko podcast. Yes, we're getting a great welcome to everyone today. Um, well, the audience seems to have gone very rapidly. Um, joining us, I'm your host, Anthony. Joining us today are, you know how this goes, Tim and Ben. Ben. Hello, Ben. Oh, beat me to it. Tim. Hello, Ben. It's like an awful talk show from like the <laughs> 90s or something. It is, it is. Nice to see you. See you nice. That sort of thing. What yeah. do points make? Yep. Prizes. Disqualifications. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, joining us, Ben and Tim, as you may have gathered. Um, John is not joining us today um, because he's got to go and get a Rolex Explorer 1 somewhere, I suspect. Um, no, because his favourite pastime. He's in later. <laughs> his favourite pastime, exactly, or sort of like uh, um, even a Tudor, who knows. But what we're going to talk about today is something we touched upon the last time we spoke, which was watch photography. We've all got nice collections of watches, and here at Watch Gecko Online Magazine, we try and showcase them in the best possible way, which is why we're blessed to have uh, people with a big photography background working throughout all aspects of the company. Ben, who actually designs the watches, uh, started off as a photographer, as he'll tell us later. Tim is just getting into photography, and it's something that I'd like to try more of too, although in my case, enthusiasm definitely outweighs talent. So that's one of the things that we'd like to look at today, just to work out how we can all take better photos of our watches, how we can show our watches in the best possible light, and how we can look after them too, in order to make sure that they photograph well. But before we do all of that, you know what's coming next. It's our weekly inspirations. Um, we've had all sorts of things in the past. I <coughs> promise I'm not going to go on about dead clergymen this time, as I did a, <laughs> uh, on another occasion. Uh, so what have you got? Um, Tim, you've now back from your holiday for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking refreshed, relaxed. You're looking positively inspired, I would say. What has inspired you this week? Uh, so I'm starting off with a watch, which... Is, is inevitable with us, I suppose. That's good. Um, That's what we're here for. And some people might not believe that, but it is what it we're is, here for. Yeah, it's the, the main attraction. Um, this, so this is a new watch from JLC, which it's made for an upcoming film called Kingsman. And it's the Master Ultra Thin Kingsman Knife Watch by JLC. Has it got a knife in it? Um, I don't know. It, they've only made 100 of them. That looks great, oh, that's doesn't really it? cool. Yeah, that I think, looks I think great. It's, it's quite wide. Um don't have that measurement here. We'll stick that up on the 40 mil. show notes. Um, for those who haven't seen the show notes yet, um, I was expecting with a name like that some form of ultra-techie watch with sort of more gadgets than a Swiss Army knife, but what we have is, in fact, quite a lovely-looking classical watch there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's re- yeah exactly that. It's, it's extremely classic. Uh, it's 40 mil in diameter. It's only 4.25 mil thick. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and they've only made 100 of them. Um, yeah, no, that's what they say. The watch is wow. yeah, pink gold case, forty mil diameter is four point two five. That's that's pretty thin. And it's got a manual wine caliber, nice eight four nine, which is one point eight five mil thick. Wow, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, that so insane. <laughs> oh, should we? I'm, I'm wow, well, quite surprised at the price. Should we play guess the price because that seems to be a common game for us? Yeah, Anthony, resident pricing expert. Let's go. Well, I'm not very good at this, but my only clue is the ooh. That Tim said. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing by that, ooh, it's it's really quite expensive. Um, and I am going to go straight in. For which which currency would you like to guess in? Uh, I've got it in US dollars here. In US dollars. I am going to go in at 55,000. Okay, nice guess. Ben, what do you think? Well, that's close to what I was going to guess. So I'm going to go a bit further away. So that ooh could have meant... Ooh, I'm going to buy it. It's, it's a grand. Um, <laughs> we, we look forward to seeing that on Tim's wrist. Uh-huh. $36,900. Uh, ben, you're the closest. It's, it's $29,800. Ooh. $29,800. See? Nice. Hence yeah. the ooh. I was ooh. quite surprised at that. I, I was surprised by that. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure what ooh that was. Yeah, it was, a, it was a poker face, that ooh. Solid gold, I guess. There's not much gold there because of how thin it is. Not much gold, no, but one of a hundred. Gold yeah. leaf. Will be seen That's on... Really um, screens around the world that, that, will, that will keep its interest high so yeah that, that's been one that i've seen recently that i have keep coming back to in my mind as a good good looking watch that's a comparative bargain isn't it yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have three one each yeah sure tim, tim will tim will get the bill uh what's up 
Um, how, how do they manage to make it so thin? Um, I don't know. I mean, also helped by the calibre being now less than two mil. Um, not sure. JLC being JLC, I suppose. Yeah, or a hammer. Or a hammer, yeah. That's cool. Or a mangle. <laughs> you, you, you know that fame there's that Salvador Dali painting isn't there where he sort of put those stopwatches oh, oh yeah. sort of like mangle yeah, oh, yeah. I, could I, be thought, that. I yeah. thought it was that yeah it could be that maybe JLC could confirm that to us absolutely yeah <laughs> inspired by Salvador Dali the ultra thin uh, GLC watch the knife man or what was it called knife man uh, it's the Master Ultra Thin Kingsman Knife Watch by JLC. Knife Halfway man. right, Knife Man. Yeah, that that sounds a bit sinister. You can go around calling your watch the Knife Man. Knife man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite suit it. That's that's quite something. Ben, what have you been uh, inspired by? So something that's prompted past memories was you coming in this morning, talking about going off to Russia and potentially looking for a Russian watch. I am. Um, Follow this uh, space. Listen to this space. We will be... Bringing Russian watches to Russia, which is obviously about as useful as bringing coals to Newcastle, but it's fun. I will do it anyway. Yeah, so it reminds me of three or four years ago when we were getting into looking for uh, vintage watches on eBay. I bought a, um, a vintage Russian watch, which was it was only like thirty quid or something. Just bought it because it had an interesting design. Since then, I've uh, broken it. <laughs> let's say while I was trying to. Do stuff to it. That's the price point you can break, though. That's that's not too yeah. bad. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of them, isn't there? I learned some lessons when I was taking it apart and refinishing it. <laughs> was one of the lessons don't such. take watches apart, or? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't try and do it to anything more expensive than thirty quid. Was probably the main lesson. Okay, uh, that's but good yeah, advice. I think it's just quite fun. We were we were having a little bit of a look earlier on eBay, and you can get some cool stuff. It's, it's mainly like slightly odd. Mm-hmm. quirky things but for the value of you know, buying a watch for 20 quid or whatever and yeah getting something that's mechanical and a bit different i think they're pretty cool yeah yeah russian watches do offer that i don't want to say unique because unique said all the time but they're they're, they're different aren't they they're, they're yeah. totally different design and case shapes can be different and colors and stuff yeah yeah definitely and there's quite a lot of them because i guess that they were just churned out to be tools and yeah stuff, loads so. of them yeah and um, would you do it again? Buy another Russian watch or break uh, another watch? Take it apart. <laughs> Buy a watch and take it apart. Yeah. Yeah, I would, yeah. Um, breaking it's part of the learning experience, isn't it? I've taken other movements apart since then, and I don't think I've broken them. <laughs> um, what, you're able to put them back together as well? I wouldn't go on to sell it. <laughs> Put them but, together with spare parts yeah. that were originally in there, but are now spare. Yeah, for anyone listening and interested in buying any watch from Watch Gecko, would like to say that they're designed and not made by yeah, Ben. Yeah, that's, that's a ben really the important designer. point. <laughs> um, that's really where it starts and stops, isn't yeah, exactly, it? Yeah, but not exactly where it starts. For myself, for, for, for some fun, yeah, sure. Um, not exactly where it starts and stops, though, because there's uh, you know other talents to Ben's bow. That we'll be talking about later. Um, <clears throat> what's inspired me is something that uh, I was actually recommended a few weeks ago. I was going to talk about it, but I forgot. Not for the first time in my life. And I've rediscovered it now. And it's an Instagram account which people may have heard of because, well, 10.8 million people have because they're the people who follow it. And it's called Humans of New York, Humans of NY. Do you know that one? Um... I don't know. I feel like I, I probably yeah, I feel like, is like I street photography. photography. It's really good. It's it's street photography. But what it is, it's a series of portraits, portraits of people in New York, and each of those people has got a story to them. They're often quite sad, surprising, upsetting, remarkable stories. Um, you wouldn't guess because, of course, the pictures just look like ordinary people in the street. You know, there's nothing remarkable about the portraits. They just look like normal people. But you you click on each post and um, you find out obviously a lot about these people, about some of the things they've had to, um, you know, they've been through, some of the people they've sort of like loved, missed, lost, opportunity they've had, stuff that's happened to them. Some stories are happy, some stories are sad. Um, But I think what it teaches you is that you look at all these people and none of them look remarkable on the surface, but everyone's got a sort of pretty incredible story to tell. Um, and obviously stories that sort of affect them now. So have a look at that. It's the sort of Instagram account that you can um, get quite lost in. 
And um, I don't know, it's interesting. It's interesting just seeing sort of what goes on in people's, ordinary people's lives mm. and uh, ordinary people's stories. The, none of these people are sort of like particularly heroes or well-known or anything at all like that. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that's no, a cool well concept. Yeah, well Good worth way it. Of using Instagram as well. Sorry, Great way of using Instagram, um, and it's something that I find myself sort of like, yeah, looking at a lot. <coughs> if you've just sort of got, say, I don't know, a couple of minutes to spare before a bus arrives or mm. whatever, so have a look at that. Um, great concept, remarkable idea. It's just one city, New York. Um, like I said, it's it's a pretty big account. It's got ten million followers, but um, I've not seen anything similar like it anywhere else and the great thing is it's just a really simple idea um so yeah no i've been i've been loving that recently really good nice yeah i'd have, have to give that a follow actually it sounds like a good one just to yeah and they've gained stories. another follower from me as well oh nice absolutely it's, it's a rabbit <laughs> hole because like i said you you read one story and you think, oh that's interesting and then it also sort of um i think there's sort of quite an interesting concept behind it as well because you look at it and Sometimes, depending on sort of like what sort of people look at, you sort of form an impression of them or what their story is likely to be, and it's often quite surprising. So, uh, so yeah, I think it sort of teaches you to have an open mind as well, mm. which is which is excellent. But speaking of open minds, um, here at Watch Gecko, we of course are um, open minded about everything. Um, well, most things. I guess it's good to be closed-minded about some things. There are some things that you should sort of like probably never do. So, so that's good. Keep anyway, yourself. Yeah. Keep yourself. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of someone who once said you should try everything once, apart from. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, we are. <laughs> we we've got a number of 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 talents to our bows, hopefully, and one of them I think is photography. Suddenly, when I first came here, I was struck by the the content that's put out photographically. And watches, in some ways, whilst they're all individually different, they all look quite similar. So photographing a watch is always a challenge because you have to make it look interesting, different, put it in different contexts to make the actual watch stand out. And that's really the art to it. You see a lot of watch photography, which is which is boring. And here I think it's done slightly differently. And I want to talk to Ben about this because Ben, as we've mentioned before, is a watch designer, note, not a watchmaker, a watch designer. Um, but he came into it through photography. And with more and more people uh, taking photographs of their watches, we thought it would be interesting just to talk a little bit about how to photograph your watch best and how to get the best out of it. Um, so, Ben, you know, you came into watch gecko, the watch industry, as a photographer. What particularly interested you about photographing watches? I think watches present a unique challenge that doesn't necessarily exist in too much other product photography. I mean, <coughs> if you think about jewelry, well, um, it's mostly in the like reflective surfaces and the amounts of different materials or textures that exist in a watch. If you think about jewelry, when you're photographing, some it might be polished, but it's not going to be you know massive, easy to control. But with a dial, like a watch dial, for example, there's all these different textures, finishes hidden under a crystal, the crystal affects how the dial reacts to the light, the case reacts to the light differently, bezel, everything about the watch, all the different shapes that it can have as well, presents like a unique challenge into making sure that you get a balance of lighting that shows the watch nicely, but also looks realistic. Um, so, so you're scaring me now, does this mean you need quite a lot of technical knowledge to take a good photograph of a watch? Not necessarily. I think that there's a lot to it if you want there to be, but there doesn't need to be. Um, for example, if you photograph a watch outside, there's not a lot you can control about natural lighting. And in some ways, that can present the watch in a more realistic fashion than you know studio photography could. So I think that, I think that pretty much anyone could take a good picture of a watch, um, whether or not you understand why it's good. That's a, a different thing, but I don't necessarily think it needs to be massively daunting. So how did you get into photography generally yourself? Uh, yeah, I talked about that before, I think, in a previous episode. It was mostly due to my um, interest in like digital editing and stuff like that. Obviously, Photoshop is a big part, or like post-processing things, uh, is a big part of photography. 
And so that's kind of where I started from using Photoshop and different things for like image manipulation. Uh, and then that set my interest to then take up photography in school for my A-levels. Um, and that's kind of where it began. Um, but until coming here, really, and photographing watches, I hadn't photographed watches before I came here. But until coming here, I still wasn't massively interested in photography as itself. It was still more the editing side of it. Um, and then as I developed over time, got more familiar with like photographic knowledge rather than just the processing knowledge, then that's when it became more of an interest to me. So now I enjoy photographing other things like cars or you know, street photography, different things like that. Well, in fact, I think your photos are great. We've seen quite a few of them uh, on our various channels. Tim, are you a photographer as well? I've, I've seen you in various... What can only be described as photographic poses recently, <laughs> by which I mean photographers' poses, not posing for a photograph. No, no, I'm not at that level yet. <coughs> um, I don't know. Would I class myself as a photographer? I don't know. I don't feel like I've I've done enough to qualify myself as as that yet. Really, um, we've got, as you said, we've got really talented people here who are very good behind a camera. Um, and for me, <coughs> I focus much more on the on the writing side of things and and getting content out there on watches. So. When it comes to photography, I just felt it was it's such a complementary um, aspect of the writing um, that I just wanted to learn. I was surrounded by people who are very good at what they do. Um, Another arm to benefit your work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think when you're writing about watches, um, half of it is is trying to get across your point on, on I don't know, how a case fin- feels on the wrist. Um, and you can spend quite a while trying, trying to get that, those words across correctly, but... You know, sometimes a, a picture speaks a thousand words. You know, we, we've 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 all heard it, and it is true. It just it's for me. It's about like capturing that moment when you're wearing a watch and and you notice a bezel or anything like that. It's like, okay, how can I capture that so if someone sees it, they they know what I'm what I'm saying, and it complements the words. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I suppose I would. I don't know, amateur photographer. I don't know. I don't like calling myself stuff like I that. I think lots of people weird. have an issue with calling <laughs> themselves a photographer because of how vague it is like mm. there's not uh, apart from the technical thing i don't want, need, need mean to trigger anyone but there's not a massive difference between anyone just pressing the shutter versus a yeah you know a, a pro the best in the world photographer pressing mm. the shutter you know it's 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 more of a conceptual thing um yeah, yeah. And, then, and then amateur photographer just sounds slightly smutty doesn't it or is it just me yeah, I suppose it could do. I don't know, really. Yeah, there was this magazine in the seventies, wasn't there, called Amateur Photographer, which was basically for wannabe. Can't say I was around in the seventies. Yeah, I wasn't a thought then. Yeah. Well, you missed that deadline. But it was basically <laughs> for sort of, I think, people who basically wanted to get into pornography, uh, essentially. Okay. Yeah, no, and, and I'm not. There's this I'm not magazine that. called Amateur Photographer, and it was a little bit of a euphemism, like taking the dog for a walk or something like that, and it just <laughs> sort of like, you know, got 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 the concept of being an amateur photographer just got a nasty reputation. Okay, yeah, I'm not that. That's, that's, I, I stick to watches, occasionally sure. cars, that's, a bit of landscape yeah. stuff, that sort of thing. That's good <laughs> and of course, the advantage of knowing how to photograph a watch, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying earlier on, Tim, about how, um, you know, we try very hard to get across in words a particular concept that can sometimes be more quickly described in a photograph. Um, the other thing is we've not got the luxury of um, having a, a full-time permanent photographer with us on all our travels. So sometimes, you know, if you're in a particular place, or setting, the only way you're going to get the photograph is to take it yourself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And I think that comes back to kind of being rounded or skillful person person in general, really. It's, it's, it's helpful to be able to have those skills to, yeah, sometimes you can capture it much better yourself than trying to explain to, even if you did have someone there, trying to explain to them, okay, I kind of want something that looks like this, that picks up on the lugs in this way because there's a certain shape. It's, it's easy to just be able to do it yourself sometimes. Yeah, I think that there's a, a large element of it is just like, being able to see things in a certain or a unique way. So even mm. like if you don't describe yourself as a photographer while you're writing, you are a creative uh, and photography is just one of the way that you bolster your express points that. or express yeah, yeah. the points that you've put in writing. And if you've, if you've used written word to, I don't know, reach that point or reach the decision and then you can just show it in the image, it's still like it's one of the ways that you've got to then mm. creating or finding that. That image. I think the main thing with all of this is that we're all just pretty much guys who have just bought cameras and are just using them to take pictures. I mean, uh, the, the main, I think the main way I 
kind of wanted to develop it more was I just I just set up an Instagram for me to post pictures of watches. And for the first, I think I've had it maybe three years now, probably for the first two years, I was just, just using my phone and just taking pictures. The, the theory behind it was we, I see watches all the time that are really cool. There's probably not, I don't really have a, a good way of documenting them. So oh, I just set up my own Instagram and just post them. Oh, here's what I've seen. This, this is a nice watch. And it was just all done through my phone. I'm not really editing them. Let's plug it. I'm sure our listeners want to know where to find Instagram. Where do they find it? Uh, it's just at Tim Vaux. Fantastic. Yeah. Check that one out. <laughs> there are some very, very cool watches and some good uh, photographs on them too. And I think, Ben, as well, we're inspired by... Go follow me too. Okay, come on, come on, let's go for it. Ben Adams Creative. <laughs> ben Adams Creative. So I think, I think we can... We can think. Okay, okay, let's... Um, yeah, Ben Adams underscore Creative. So... I am incredibly inconsistent with my posting. Yeah. But I will get better <laughs> for you guys who follow me now. So just because nice. I always enjoy starting a fight, how many followers have you each got? I don't think it matters. Tim's definitely got more because I post like a couple of times I, a year, but I'm yeah, on, on 1,313. I bet you'll be way more after people listen to this podcast. Mine's 2,700-ish. But uh, I, resounding I, victory for Tim. I do, <laughs> I do post more regularly. So you're a right. professional photographer. Oh, I'm the there we go. Photographer. I've got an Instagram with a, thousand, a few thousand followers, that's <laughs> it. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I just, I just like posting. I think because for me, photography is still quite new. So I think for you, you've obviously done it for a while. You're doing more design stuff. For the for the work I do, I'm quite closely connected to interesting watches that are coming through the door, and I'm already taking pictures of them. So it's just, oh, I'll post it on Instagram and just yeah. talk to the community a bit. So Absolutely. So, Tim, you've just started sort of taking pictures of watches. It's something I'd like to get into too. I'm sure many people <coughs> listening would like to because particularly, you know, everyone these days, not everyone, but a lot of people have their own Instagrams, their own blogs. Um, yeah. These days, most people who have a website are maintaining their own website. And, um, you know, you're expected really to, to sort of do everything. And it's it's better in some ways to do everything, you know, to, as you say, have control of your content in such a way. So what advice would you give for, you know, someone like me, for example, who would like to sort of get a camera, start taking pictures of watches. I mean, like I just use a, an iPhone, which, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. What's, what's the best way to, uh, to get into it? Um, I think I found just kind of keeping things quite simple. Um, the, the, the easiest pose to do, and it's probably the most popular, certainly with, with social media, is just on wrist shots. Um, so yeah, as, as the name suggests, literally just a picture of a wrist wearing a watch. Um, they're, they're quite easy ways of, of, of starting and I, th- I think adding context to those pictures is quite important as well. So whether it be you get your, kind of your, your feet in the background and that adds a bit of depth or maybe if you're wearing like an interesting jacket or a, or a cuff, you can kind of introduce that and that stops Yeah, you it. can choose your outfit to match the watch and then yeah. that would help the image, you know, without any photography knowledge or skill needed. It's just you setting it up by what you're wearing it. Yeah, the, the point of that image in the end is to, just to capture yeah. the, the, the It's also good at telling a story wearing. if you get like... Yeah, know, if you're on holiday and you get a boat in the <coughs> background, or you can just something like that. Yeah, or you're wearing a suit and it's a dress watch. Like, so yeah, I, th- I think that they're quite quite easy, simple ways of, of kind of getting into it. Um, probably the best advice is probably just start doing it. Just start, just start posting them on an Instagram, or just start taking them and documenting them, and, and looking for inspiration from other people as well, and trying to gain um, learn from other people. Basically, you don't need to like reinvent the wheel with it. Really, you just need to. Is it just me that that whenever I take a a photo of a watch on my wrist, um, so I've obviously got camera or rather iPhone in one hand, wrist in the other, I'm about to take the photograph and then suddenly you say your cuff rides down and then you sort of pull it back up again and you're about to take the shot again (laughs) and then something else happens and then you do all of that and then you realise it's blurry or something like that. How do you get consistently good shots all the time? Um, I don't know really. I, I, I don't know, cuffs, you can do certain folds that keeps them where they are. I, th- I think a lot of people... See, this is why you listen to this podcast. It's secret techniques yeah. such as the cuff fold. <laughs> the cuff fold, yeah. You can tuck it back in and maybe button it up sometimes if you're wearing a shirt. Um, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of the times people, people put the phone or the device quite close to the watch. Yeah, you said this is what I do. That's a mistake, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, probably. <laughs> I, if I was going to use a phone, so the, the main drawback of a phone would be like the focal length and then the lack of aperture settings. Um if you don't know what that means, essentially... Well, what that means is that that's why my photos are crap and everyone else's aren't. No, of course not, no. It does. Um, <laughs> as you bring the phone closer to the watch, it'll start to fish eye things. Um, so if instead you bring it further back and then just 
zoom, even though it's a digital zoom, you'll lose a little bit of image quality, but the proportions of the watch should look better. Yeah. Um, or you can just take it further back and then crop it down. Um, if you take it too close, the minimum focus distance isn't great on phones either. So you could be just too close and it looks blurry because yeah. it's not in focus, essentially. Don't forget, I've got really short arms too. That doesn't help. You do. That's actually a good point. You do get yeah. used to being in some very weird positions taking on wrist shots. I th- I used a thirty five mil Fuji lens on my on my camera for a while, and and I had to kind of stretch my right arm back further than you'd expect to kind of get it all in and looking nice. Yeah. Um, so you rather look, you look like you're about to punch someone or it, something. It like look, that. Yeah, so it yeah, looks yeah, qu- yeah. it looks quite weird. It looks like I've I don't know probably hurt my arm by doing that over the years. Um, so yeah, it's, it, I think yeah, Ben's right. Be prepared to take a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. sacrifice it. <laughs> It'll be a toll on your body. <laughs> if you do that, can you not? Can you see the the picture you're taking or not? Um, not sometimes always. not. No, <laughs> you just take a few. Just take twenty to get one that looks quite good. Right. A large element <laughs> is trial and error, and every time yeah. you mess up, you'll learn something. That's the best advice. I can the best give. thing. The best thing to think about with it as well is you don't need to be somewhere. Um, you don't need to be on holiday to take a really nice picture. Like you, most time, if you're doing an on wrist shot, you're just kind of looking down at your wrist. So you can spend ages just practicing anywhere, really yeah. anywhere. With I don't know if it's out, outside, it's quite nice. You can maybe get a bit of grass in or different concrete texture or whatever, just to play around with some backgrounds. But the concept is just knowing how to position your arm and the camera to get quite a nice shot. Um, what what sort of um, camera would you suggest people start off with? I mean the phone. It's hard to argue with the quality of the phone. I mean, I know you've got the 11 Pro, well, the newest 11, newest iPhone, and the camera on that's, yeah. they're, they're really good. The best thing, I think, that's been added to phones more recently, which solves some issues that I have with phone photography, is the portrait <coughs> the portrait mode on iPhones. Yeah. Second, so what? Portrait mode. See, I didn't even know that. So if you open up your camera and then scroll right on the uh, oh yeah, see that. It is, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a portrait mode, and <coughs> essentially it'll allow you to choose like the focus point, and then it will blur the background in in a so simple way, and that's mm. replicating like a shallow depth of field, being able to control the aperture on a uh, more conventional camera, and I think that that plays a big difference. Like I think the the main step from phone photography to camera photography is being able to control you know the settings better, especially through aperture. Um, but for someone just starting out, I presume you have a phone, you might as well use it. Like mm. it's, it could be quite an investment to to go into camera photography. There's a lot to choose from. There's a lot of things to learn settings wise. That oh. is almost unnecessary. Yeah. Well, not unnecessary, but you know, it's, <coughs> it's, for, when yeah. you're starting out for for the average person, and you can take really good stuff with your phone. If you know, mm. if yeah, definitely. Some people say that you can't but I think it's you know a bit of snobbery really mm. because that certainly nowadays iPhone like the phone, yeah. iPhones on uh, cameras on iPhones are crazy so remember that portrait mode on iPhones for watch photography that's something I I've haven't actually tried that I think because I've got an older phone I don't think it's I don't know if difficult I've really with um, wrist shots definitely because it, the, the minimum focus distance for the portrait thing oh, is, is a lot further, further than yeah. just like the minimum focus distance of the <coughs> camera okay. mm. um, so it might be more for like you want to set up shots like I don't know, put it on a wall or something outside, and different things like that. But yeah. I think it's a nice thing to experiment with, um, or shows you a bit of, gives you an insight into what using a camera and playing with camera settings would be like if if you've never done that before. Which camera did you get for yourself, Tim, when you started sort of camera photography? Um, when I first started, I actually used uh, my dad's old camera, which. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Maybe like an old Nikon or something. Nikon, I yeah. think. Yeah, it was something like that. Um, I think it, it, he, he had it years, and even at the time, it was like two or three hundred pounds. So it wasn't break the bank crazy. Uh, and I think the lens wasn't wasn't too crazy either. And that, and I used that for a few months just to see if I liked the idea of of, of taking pictures with a camera. Um, <clears throat> and then I kind of started just once I decided I liked it, I started looking around and seeing what I'd go for really. Um, and I ended up selling on Fuji. Right. Um, I have the X-T3. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's I, I, re- I think one of the main reasons I really like that camera is all of the settings are like physically on the camera as dials um, and things that you turn. So 
we want the aperture, it's on the lens, you can turn it, it's all, everything's visual all the time. You don't have to dive into menus and remember to hold this button and scroll this wheel to change something. Yeah, If, if, like if something's off, it's all there. And yeah. it's, it, you move around and it, it's simple, it's, it's really easy. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, <clears throat> I've really enjoyed that. I think the Fuji line of cameras is really good. Um, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> that sounds excellent. Which camera do you use, Ben, normally when you're... So I use an X-T2, which is the one down from the X-T3, which is what... Tim's using at the moment. Um, the XT range of Fuji cameras, I think, is just a really well-rounded camera. So they're quite, they're quite small. Um, yeah, they're mirrorless, aren't they? Yeah, because they're mirrorless. So that keeps um, the proportions down. And just the Fuji cameras offer like immense value for money. It's just t- typical like Japanese products yeah. and engineering. It's just incredible quality. Really, you know, it's not it's not cheap, but for what you get it's um it's really good one thing that i like um which watch people could probably relate to is vintage lenses um oh yeah you've experienced that really? yeah That's interesting in the like 60s 70s kind of that time period lenses were really like a, a really nice engineering kind of point is mostly fabricated from metal and, and different things like that rather than like the plastics and stuff of today. Um, so there's kind of a nice tactile element which relate to watches and, and mechanical things. Um, you can take them apart and service them pretty easily. I've done that before and didn't necessarily break it like I have done with watch <laughs> movements. Um, a few less moving parts. And yeah, you can, like, for example, with the Fuji camera, you can get mounts <coughs> which would allow you to put these vintage lenses onto a modern camera. So you get kind of the best of both worlds of being able to have all these settings which would probably help to you know get rid of some of the imperfections that the vintage lens would add but then you also get to try out different focal lengths at a really really reasonable price like vintage lenses you can get them on ebay like cheap like just like vintage watches you know around 50 quid or whatever um to be able to try out different focal lengths that otherwise you would you know if you wanted a, a fuji lens a modern one it might be 500 um so yeah, it's just it's just a cool th- cool way that you can experiment and then also get quite unique images from. So the the way that they were constructed back then is slightly different to now. That like with the aperture blades and stuff is is it can get quite technical. But essentially, there's a unique character to vintage lenses which can't necessarily be replicated in modern lenses because everything's too perfect. So the imperfections of the vintage lenses, I think, right. add some cool element. Uh, and we have had images i think around christmas of last year so like the end of 2019 if you look at the Gakota instagram a lot of those images i took with um vintage lenses we can i can post a few of them that's mm. interesting and yeah the, uh, we'll put a few yeah, up the, the blur in the background and stuff it has a, a unique character and then also the coloring is a, it looks you know a bit more vintage it's not necessarily true to real life but i think it's it adds another artistic depth uh and it's enjoyable because they're, they're cheap that's interesting. Reminds me a little bit of um, our link to his website, a guy called Josh Paul. He's an American guy, a photographer. He works in uh, Formula One. And he decided to do an entire Formula One season using a 1913 Graflex camera. Oh, wow. And uh, it's, it's quite <laughs> remarkable. The results wow. are quite remarkable. That's really cool. And that sounds yeah, very that interesting. Was, I was cool really idea. looking forward to Goodwood Revival this year. Oh uh, yeah, that's a, that would have been happen. about now, wouldn't it? Yeah, would have been around now. Yeah, because I, I really wanted to go there and shoot with a vintage lens in that you know like vintage style and edit it in a way. And I'm pretty annoyed that it didn't happen. But uh, oh well, it's always next year. But yeah, that's that sounds really cool. That's a the dr- a dream of yeah, yours. Yeah, that is the dream. That would be very good actually. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. So for example, look, his 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 one I'll pass it around. I'll put it around. But his uh, Fernando Alonso being pushed to the grid. With the 1913 camera, it's all black and white. It's in Bahrain. It's very, very moody, and uh, he certainly stands out, Joshua, because you have all these packs of photographers, as you do in any sport, and they've all got these long, very modern lenses poking poking out. And he's here with essentially this enormous wooden box, and um, wow. I've got incredible. A f- yeah, I've got a portrait of myself which he took, and you know you have to stand still for a long time for it to. Um, and it's part of a charm. So I just thought this was an incredible idea. <laughs> He's put them all together in a, in a photo collection, and it's it's well worth a look. 
So I guess he's taken the idea of uh, a vintage lens to pretty much an extreme, extreme by going, yeah, going for a vintage like camera that. in a very modern sport. Makes mm. you stand out. I've seen people, there was a guy, because of like 3D printing technologies now, people can almost like create their own mounts to put a vintage lens or, you know, their own concoction, let's say, of, mm-hmm. of lens onto <coughs> a, a modern camera. And there was a guy who 3D printed like a lens case essentially and then he went to norway or something like that oh no you would say and found <coughs> the most it was like the most pure ice in the world that you can find and he made a lens out of ice well um, yeah somehow he like you like put it into this lens case thing that he had created and he took pictures using ice as the you know what would be the glass on the lens and it created some really cool yeah, like we should really find that. Was, it, really it, could, it could have only lasted about fifteen minutes because <coughs> of the. Uh, I was going to say you can't really sort of like because of it melting warm. and stuff. Um, and he, it was if you watch the video, it looked like an incredible feat because it wasn't it wasn't easy. It wasn't just go to this beach, or, or you know, or you know, by the sea where everything's frozen <laughs> and find a little bit of ice and put it in. But it was you know, you had to have it at this like perfect shape, and you know, it had to be the perfect temperature and it had to be clear and everything. So, but. I'll Best try and find the video and link it. It was really interesting. Fantastic. Mm. Best excuse ever. My lens melted, so I didn't do the first <laughs> Sorry about this that. week. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you, question for both of you, really. What would you recommend? So, like, somebody <coughs> like me who, who wants to get into photography but hasn't always necessarily got the sort of the time and the space to carry around a bigger camera, are there some more compact cameras that can work or are you better off sticking with a phone to take photographs of watches? I think, travels? as we said, like, the mirrorless cameras, like the Fuji X-T range, are really good because... They're a lot smaller than the typical DSLR. Like, we've also got some Canon DSLRs here. And for weight and size, it's maybe not quite double, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, <coughs> if it was or mm, yeah, very close to. Um, so they're quite good. Fuji do more, so they've got the... There X- are other compact ones, aren't there, that are more <coughs> like street mm. photography. Based. Yeah, so there's one, I think the newest one is the X100V, but they also have the older one, which I think is X100F. And they are both fitted to um, unremovable 23mm lenses. Yeah, I think w- ones with fixed lenses as well, that kind of removes the whole need for the mount. Yeah, um, and you can so literally like slip smaller. those in your pocket, and they're, yeah. they're literally sold as like the travel camera. Yeah. Um, they're That's not cheap. The newest one is about £1,000. Yeah. Um, I do know that Adrian from Bark and Jack actually has the 100 X100V, I think. Right. Um, I remember we were speaking about it briefly when he posted it. Um, and he said, like, it's, it's ridiculously sharp for, for the lens and for the camera and stuff. So, yeah, th- there are those smaller compact ones. Um, I think a lot of people say is the, the whole cliche of, like, the best camera there is is the one you've got with you sort of thing. Yeah. So your phone, it will, will yeah, be able to fo- carry your you. your phone as well, yes. Carry you yeah. fine, really. Um, but that next step is I, I'm probably not the, the most uh, experienced person to talk about recommendations for it, but I found that the Fuji system works really well because it kind of holds your hand through learning process quite nicely and I, yeah. I you don't really need to dive into the menus really that much yeah due to the dial layout and stuff that there's a lot that would be hidden in settings that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily hidden in settings on the fuji ones yeah uh, settings kind of so uh, it's quite straightforward to understand um <laughs> absolutely <coughs> and, and i think sort of for many people who want to take better photos of their watches um that you know sort of like to have a a myriad of settings is complicated but you know they just want to take better photos, take good photos, <coughs> have some input into taking the photo, but, you know, basically not need to sort of study for a photography yeah. degree in order to get the best mm-hmm. out of it. I'd say as well, Lightroom, like don't underestimate the power of post-processing. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. If people could see the before and after shots of our images, you know, before and after they were edited, they'd probably be very surprised because yeah. you can do a lot. Yeah, um, that's very disheartening looking at raw pictures in the camera and thinking, oh, I've got none here. Now these all look rubbish. I, I, Goodwood, when we went last year, I yeah. remember being like, we were there all day. I probably took, I don't know, a thousand plus images, just taking loads. Um, and I remember at the end of the day thinking, oh, I've got maybe five I like. And I ended up with, <laughs> I don't know, 20 or 30 that I was five. like, oh, these are really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't happy with any of them <laughs> because you're looking at them raw and you think, well, actually, that's sometimes that's just half the picture. Yeah. yeah. Quite literally. It's, you need to get into Lightroom and play around with it and change around the colors. And, and the I think that helps stuff. the creativity. Some people, I think I think it's becoming more accepted now, but originally I, f- I feel like people were like, oh, you're just trying to save a picture that's no good if mm. you're having to edit it to look good. But the post-processing now in the modern day is such a large part of it that it really does allow you to express your creativity 
or you know let's say you were taking images outside here in Tewkesbury the lighting's probably not going to look as good as if you were yeah. let's in say the in Palmas. Monaco in Monaco yeah, yeah. I, know you can uh, say that. I don't know <laughs> I, think Tewkesbury, I think Tewkesbury and the Cutlers there have got a lot in common actually <laughs> <laughs> so you know that not everyone is blessed by a great location for shooting or, or interesting things or you know lighting wise mm. different things so post processing as yeah, well yeah that's a very good to point to explore that yeah. can allow you to make up for what you might be lacking in natural light or different things. Yeah, I mean, all of our most, well, I suppose if you speak for the Watch Gecko site in general, uh, most of the images are taken in a studio. Probably, what do you say, about half and half in studio, one wrist shots, half outside, just as a general, uh, you know, phrase, I suppose. I, I think we, so, but, but the point that we haven't really spoken about too much here is the, the, the studio side of photography. And then, like setting up a shot and getting the props in. We'll, yeah, we'll um, get onto that. That's mm. that's that's one of the things I wanted to cover. Um, a quick question again to both of you, uh, really aimed at idiots like me. When I try and take a photograph of watch, I always have massive problems with reflections. Happens seems to happen all the time. And what's the best way to get a clean shot and not get those reflections in? Because it seems that whichever way I move or move the wrist or move the watch, th- there's always something. There's a technique that I call the claw, <laughs> and that is the, the most important claw. part. Well, it's worth listening to this podcast for all of this. Tell <laughs> us about the claw. So essentially, when you take the, a picture of a watch outside, the crystal will be reflecting something. Uh, so what I do, I'm not 100% sure how I normally do it. You kind of need someone else. I, I was think. just about to say, you can't um, really do this on your own. Because you can't you do this on your own unless you have three hands. I was about to say, you need three hands. But sometimes yeah. I use my head, but I can't call my head a claw because... <laughs> but essentially, the concept it's is... Called worse. You, you have the watch, and if you put your hand, your fingers, into like a claw shape, or like kind of <laughs> manipulate your fingers, and then you put it out of the shot, but above the crystal. Yeah. Because you put your hand into a weird shape, it doesn't look like a hand in the reflection, and it just lets ah. a little bit of light through but blocks off most of the of the light from the dial. So, <laughs> so it essentially, with the little specks of light that are coming through the, the holes in your, your fingers, um, that allows the hands or different elements of like indexes to be lit. But then with the majority of your hand blocking the light from the reflection, the whole dial or crystal isn't illuminated. But you do need an accomplice for this. But you need an accomplice you or you use else, your head. Yeah. So well, I, I'm, if you take yeah. it, you know, you've got your wrist and you've got your hand with the phone above. And then if you put your head like proper forward, you could block the reflections from the crystal with your head. This is a technique that I perfected over the years. Yeah, look out for curly hair in the reflection that's, of his image. Yeah. That's his head. Yeah, that's the issue. So I, I've done that a lot. Is It depends on the dial color as well and the, and the case finish. The Zin U50 was really good for that because it was like all subdued, flat dial was great. Omni um, shots were easy, there's no reflections. But some watches, like dome crystals especially, you get a lot of reflections. And uh, yeah, I've used the head technique. Uh, I have quite curly hair, so until I pen sense on my images, you can just see, well, I can see them, I don't know if anyone else does much. You just see kind of curls reflected. Um, so I found wearing a hat. It's very good yeah. for that. Well, I was, was going to say, you're, often, of your you're often wearing a baseball cap, Tim. Is yeah. that to basically act as a, an artificial claw? Uh, yeah, I suppose that's one of the reasons, and yeah. and the hair's a bit mental at the moment, so just stick it on. But yeah, it, it does. It can control the mane. And that's the, interesting. <laughs> so so if you see some of our shots and you think, oh, that's a really like a little bit like the Russian watch we were looking at this morning, you think it's a really interesting spiderweb effect on the dial. It's it's not that at all. It's just yeah. Tim's hair. It could just be the bloke's got curly Normally, hair. Normally, yeah. like Basil Ward <laughs> and stuff, photographers will use like black card or a black umbrella. Yeah, but the head or the claw is the budget version because most people should have hands or a head. I, I, I do least. know that this, this isn't just us. There's a few people on Instagram I've spoken to in the past who have said that they, they've done this yeah. sort of thing. And essentially, and it works. either so. use body parts, <laughs> an umbrella, or if you stood under a tree, you could, you know, like angle the dial so that the, uh, Leaves the crystal is reflecting off of the bark or something, which is a dark color, and then it won't be completely illuminated. You just got to consider what is above the crystal and there's two ways that it also reflects so if you're taking a picture in the sun let's say it's a sunset i think that's a good example the light might be coming from almost the side profile um but if you take the image with the watch pointing straight up you've also got reflections just from like the sky so there's there's different light sources that you've got to be aware of um so normally when i'm taking a picture in this in the sun 
I have the sun coming in from the side and then like black card completely above so that I have the nice sunlight, but I don't have any of the gross reflections mm. that are just, you know, a big blue sheet from the sky, <laughs> essentially. So you, you kind of have to realize that there's a lot of different points that it might be reflecting of. And then also the, the fact that the, the crystal reacts to light in a pretty unique way. Yeah, some watches are better than others. I think yeah. a dome crystals are dome crystals disgusting. are awkward to take yeah. pictures of. I think a, a flat crystal. Well, Ben, you'll probably disagree or agree with me here. A flat crystal silver dial uh, brushed case watch that's probably got to be one of the easiest, maybe. Yeah, white yeah, dial like as well, like a flat like mundane, like a really flat yeah. white. That's got to be really easy. Bright dials. It's a bit like if if you've owned a black dial watch and a, a white dial watch, you might have noticed that you can't really see fingerprints on a white dial watch. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to kind of describe also how reflections work where yeah. because of the color like obviously the reflections are still there the fingerprints not disappeared but you just can't see it mm-hmm. um but if you have a black dial it's a lot more unforgiving fantastic and of course anything with the uh, jewelry in such as your rainbow daytona nightmare oh yeah i haven't i haven't seen one of those that would be good but just take a picture of but i think it could could be quite stressful with the. i look cool in the sun though wouldn't it i would look good yeah i would look good anywhere it's a good watch yeah <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> moving on. You touched briefly, Tim, on studio photography. And um, obviously we do studio photography because we want to showcase watches in a professional way for our social media channels and for our online magazine. But of course there'll be people who just want to take photos of their watches you know, for their for their own social channels or just for fun um, who don't have access to a studio. Um, what sort of thing would you recommend, you know, as say sort of props or something, what's a good way to take a photograph of a watch when it's not on your wrist? Um, yeah, I'll be honest. I don't really do much studio stuff. Most, I, I actually prefer being outside to taking pictures because I quite like. I think a lot of photography, in in general as a whole, for products, you know, you see it in every industry. A lot of the official images are either like renders or like really high quality studio stuff, and it's really quite hard to see what that product is actually like in person. So I normally try and focus on when I want to capture what this watch in particular, sometimes cars or whatever, but what this watch looks like in the real world when it's on a wrist um, and it's actually in use. That's what I really like to capture. Um, studio stuff, it's a shame that Alice isn't here actually today because she she does a lot of our studio photography and she's been doing it for a while. I know obviously, Ben, you've you kind of started there as well, so you might be in a better position. Um, I know you can get things like the white white boxes and stuff. Can't nah, you? don't use a white don't box. Okay. Well, what's a white box? Because, like, we... I don't know. What's it's a box. Is? It's white. Um, oh, right. So it's the basically just to reflect box. white onto every angle. Yeah. Uh, so you... Yeah, it's just... It's a box. It's a white white box. <laughs> you put the watch <laughs> in the middle and every surface is white. So then it, like, ah. kind of illuminates it. And it's, yeah, it's a way it to, like, really bring clean. in, like, diffuse light from every angle. But no, not for watch photography. It looks disgusting. Because you, you lose all element of reality with the watch yeah because it just doesn't look real it's massive that, that's a big thing that i think is important to capture with with yeah. the watch stuff i think in product stuff in general i mean i mean over the years we've had that i think people have thought over the years on instagram that our pictures are, are faked because they're taken yeah. in studio but but they're not like i think that they're just a high quality picture that's a studio shot and i think we're, we're so used to pictures being renders half the time that even more so now it's really difficult to see when a product uh, product image is real um, yeah but yeah, no, m- most of our, most if all of our, our, well, they all are, lifestyle pictures are real, apart from the ones where we've said in the caption, oh, here's a render of a new product, for example. Yeah, and they would never really be lifestyle pictures for renders. We normally do them on like a yeah, exactly. black background and yeah. such. Yeah. And we've got some sort of uh, cool props as well, which we often use. Uh, things like, for example, uh, steering wheels and driving gloves for Yeah, driving I think watches. a nice assortment yeah, of nice. props that are relevant to the watch um, is is like one of the most important things. So if, if I was going into the studio now the the things i would consider is like the light sources first we normally use two light sources um you can use three but you've got to consider shadows as well and if you have three which would necessarily be like one left one right one above there's there's light coming from all angles then so it kind of eliminates the shadows what i normally tend to do is have a light source coming from one side which is normally you know either either left or right but then also slightly back so it's lighting up the dial of the watch, and then one from the top, um, which helps light the whole scene, let's say. Um, Then, yeah, consider props. With the props come the depth, so you want to consider, like, background, foreground, 
Um, and then, yeah, have the watch in the mid-ground, create some nice depth, tell a story through the prop usage. Mm. Um, I think you'd be quite subtle with it as well. I think yeah. it's quite tempting to, to yeah, overload I think, it. Yeah, I think yeah, if less if is more sometimes. you cram too much in, it can look a bit weird sometimes. Like, a lot of the time we just use, like, a bag, like a rucksack or something mm. like that because there's, like, texture, texture and, and, and levels to it. And, you know, it's bigger than the watch, so it can provide some amount of background and foreground. Um, or plants, stuff like that. Some stuff that's a bit more natural, um, not too gimmicky. I think that's important as well to to make it look like it could have been a real scene, rather than just like yeah, like o- weird overly stuff staged and yeah. Um, yeah. And end up the field is a massively important one, especially like kind of touched on that with the portrait mode thing. But if you if you're doing studio photography with a proper camera, having a more shallow depth of field helps bring that stage kind of to life keeps those props not from overpowering the watch but from adding something to it so with a shallow depth of field the watch would be the main thing that's in focus and then the the foreground the background would start to come out of focus um which we are one really helps to put the focus on the watch because it's the only thing in focus yeah um but yeah just it just looks nicer as well and, and that's one of the main differences between phone photography and proper camera photography is with the phone, most of the time, everything's in focus and it can look quite flat and bland. Um, mm. So then, yeah, the, the last really important thing is focal length of lenses. Um, there'd be a good graphic online that would kind of display how an image can be fish-eyed from the f- various focal lengths. So if you have a really short focal length, like 16 millimeters or something, it'd be great if you're you know, in a landscape or, mm. or whatnot. But if you're really close to something, it'll be really, really fish-eyed. What we've tended to use like the most throughout our time we're doing studio photography is macro lenses so you have to get really far away from the shot like we don't necessarily just use them for macro purposes you can it's a bit like when people use macro lenses for portrait photography um if you get it pretty far away from the shot it should display the watch because the watch is small in a lifelike kind of profile it won't look fish-eyed obviously you can correct the profile of an image in, in lightroom and different things like that um but yeah focal lens if you buy a camera and you don't pay too much attention to what lens is coming on, the kit lens is probably, it's never like the best choice. So normally it would come with like a zoom lens with yeah. a, like an F4 or something like that, which would normally show too much. You know, it's not, not shallow enough of a depth of field for what, for what I prefer. Um, we normally just buy the camera body only and then would buy like an 80 mil um, macro lens or something around there, which would go, you know, I like lenses that go to f 1.4 for a macro lens. You don't really need it. 2.8 is fine. Um, but we also shoot a lot with like 50 mil and 35 mil mm. and they would normally go to 1.4. Yeah. I think the main thing in general with just photography, if people want to get into it more is you, you can do a lot with your phone. Um, I think if you're doing watches on wrist shots are great. I think probably the main thing to consider is probably bring your arm out, out a little bit further than you actually think. Um, add a bit of context into there. Um, outside, the easiest place to start. I mean, I've I've been yeah. doing photography about a year, and I still prefer being outside. I think soon I'll try doing a few more studio stuff. Yeah, I think. But natural light, I I think is is great. The realism um, of being outside, and you can also get creative with it as well. Mm. I think it just beats being in a studio because, kind of as I just brushed on, there's like there's so much stuff to studio photography, and even if you kind of know everything, execute everything well still doesn't really beat a nice real yeah inherently image, the real really. real photography real real image taken outside yeah. is is better because of that reality there's definitely strengths to studio photography i've seen it a lot in like jewelry or like even like skincare or makeup photography I've right. seen this can be quite interesting where you're like if it's like a really reflective product like it's like polished plastics or, or mm-hmm. different things like that like being able to control the reflections yeah, product imagery really nicely like yeah proper sterile product imagery with like wacky backgrounds or whatever mm-hmm. in like different colors that's you know something that's really good in those industries but in watches i don't it doesn't necessarily add anything like a, a watch is a very personal and tactile thing and it, owning one is an experience and i think that yeah the outside more lifestyle photography presents that in a much better way yeah interesting so are there any can you think of each of you photographs you've taken of a watch that you're particularly proud of and 
pleased with over the years? If the if you had to choose one of the many thousands of images you've taken, is there one that stands out as um, you know y- you thought you did a really good job with that? I, I really liked, for example, I know it's a recent one, but I really like your picture, Tim, of uh, of of the U fifty on on the beach in Cornwall, covered with a bit of sand. I thought that was a great idea. And, oh yeah, and I, I really did enjoy those, of, and really really sort of captured the spirit of of, of that watch. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that one, actually. I, I think I was quite pleased with how the U50 images came out. Um, I think for me, because I'm kind of still learning them, I kind of feel like the best image is like yet to come sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there are a few images. I, I, I think I, I, was, I was quite pleased with the Goodwood images. Yeah. I think me, me, Ben and Damon went, and we all were there snapping away all day, and I, I think we all got some really nice shots. Um, yeah, the U51 stand out in my mind because I, I, cool. we'll, I, was, I was pleased with those. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll link to a couple of shots on the uh, on our own Instagram. Yeah, sure. And, and your Instagram, of course, you know, like uh, now that this has been unleashed on the wider world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm constantly posting on there. So, yeah. How about you, Ben? So for me, going back to what I said earlier about uh, late and late last year and early this year was taking shots with um, a vintage lens and... I found that really good because it allowed me to be a bit more creative and considered about what I was doing. Something about vintage lenses, which some people may miss over a modern lens, is you've got to be a lot more considered about like the settings that you choose, and it's a lot more of a manual task. For example, the aperture ring wasn't broken on that vintage lens, but you had to like oh, yeah. pull back some... <laughs> button thing for it's the like a lock to thing, engage. Yeah. Yeah. It's like driving a classic car as opposed yeah, to exactly. sort of like a um, modern so car. You had to spend a lot more time setting it up and, and considering the different settings rather than just like going in and taking mm. a quick snap. And I think that that forced me, at least, to be more considered about the composition and different things like that. Um, so I can link a few of the shots that were taken with the vintage lens, but some of the ones that were taken of the Kokoda GMTs when they were prototypes, um, I really enjoyed taking. I can remember taking those and, you know, taking my time with it and thinking that they came out really well. These are studio shots, so it's a good example of lighting and then also trying to make something look real or bring a story to life. Um, yeah. I'll pass around. My oh, yeah, I remember that shot. Yeah, that was a nice one. That's a, that's a great shot. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. So that's with the vintage lens. We'll, we'll yeah. link to that. And that vintage lens is now sold because it was radioactive and I <laughs> was paranoid. <laughs> so that's one thing you have to look out with vintage lenses. Uh I think it was banned, maybe in the 70s or 80s or something, but they had experimented with various like radioactive materials within the lenses themselves. They're only very slightly radioactive. But oh, that's all right, only a little bit. It made me a bit paranoid because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure, 100% sure. If in doubt, stick with an iPhone. Yeah, That's fantastic. The only I'm thing your iPhone's doing is... Sending that photo you. to myself so um, <laughs> so we can put it in the show notes. Nice. That's a great one. Fantastic. Um, finally, before we wrap up, let me finish with another question to both of you. Um, similar to what we did actually last time, but if you could do photograph one watch with one camera, and let's add a location too, what would it be? So here's the here's the question. You can take a photograph of any watch with any camera in any place. What will it be? That now, is a good question. Ask Ben. Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> I've got an idea. I, 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 I've got a vague idea. So, oh, so, go on then. So, go for so, it. So I'll, I'll go first, which might give you some thinking time. Tim steals I've, I've got a good one. I just want to make sure I get all the details right. Okay. Okay. Well, sort of like my, my idea is is slightly stolen. Um, it's uh, because it's what we were talking about earlier. But I would like to have a go at Josh's 1913 camera. And I'd like to, to photograph something like a, the, the oldest watch that I could find with it. Um, to, to keep it in period so it's something like this, I have no idea a tr- I'd say a 20s Cartier in Paris with uh, Josh's 1913 Ooh. camera I think hey. I think that would look great I think you could have a Parisian skyline you'd have that sort of like moodiness which you always get with the, the really really old camera and I think the sort of like uh, the, the Cartier would scream Paris as well so so yeah I'd go for a, a, a 19 uh, a 1920s Cartier in Paris with a 1913 camera. 
because you know that's the, the and and then you can you can sort of have a bit of what's his name Kay Bresson in it as well. You know, you, you get the real vibe of uh, of of Parisian photography of around that period, because I guess sort of like you know sort of watches at the time would have been photographed with those cameras. So I'd like to sort of recreate. Um, an authentically early photograph using that camera. And because the camera's old, the images are inevitably sort of blurry and fuzzy. You can just call that atmosphere rather than competence. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Which is, uh, which is great, because I think this sort of like, you know, it's a bit easier back then. So I'm definitely going to go for Joshua's 1913 camera, Cartier, Paris. Nice. Go on, Ben. Cool. Thought, any thoughts, Ben? I've got two ideas. Um, oh, see, you're always breaking rules. You break the rules on the cars and well, watches. Well, I had one idea, and now he's just inspired me with another one, which uh, I think okay. might tip the scales. So, <laughs> kind of going back to, again, <laughs> what I said earlier with uh, Goodwood Revival, I think photographing a nice vintage watch at a car show. So one that I had photographed recently, which was on my Instagram, was a um, an Explorer, a Rolex Explorer one. Um was it John's? It wasn't John's. It was one at the Vintage Watch Company, and it had a very, very tropical dial. Uh, and I took a quite a close-up macro shot of the dial to show the um, the texture, and I think it was represented really well. So I think something like that, taken at oh, a a, um, a car show, you know, like a revival or maybe a concourse. Um, yeah, maybe even like is it the Lake Como. Mm-hmm. Show. Yeah, that'd be Can't good. remember what it's yeah, called. Villa Desti. Yeah, something like that, where you've got the really nice landscapes. I'll borrow one of the guys with his classic Ferraris. And his tailored Take suit. one of these out. Use my camera, because I need to know how to use the settings if I'm going to uh, nice. be in a weird location with a weird <laughs> watch. But with a vintage lens. Maybe not a rea- radioactive one, but... Uh, Come back. Some, some vintage lenses that are... <laughs> <laughs> not kill you. There are some vintage lenses which offer like really unique bokeh. Which Bokeh is like the, uh, the the way to describe, I guess, this, like kind of like the light in the background of the image where it's blurry. Um, Smooth. Yeah, there are some which have like a swirl mm-hmm. effect or like different things like that. So like a really cool vintage lens with a unique character to it to present the image in that kind of like vintage 60s way. A bit like how you were trying with your 20s approach. Love it. Love so it. Yeah, kind nice. of stolen. And uh, apart from that, maybe a chronometric blue because I've never photographed that and it's got a... Very interesting doll. Soon, soon we will see one. Yeah, Ooh. location doesn't really matter. Oh, interesting studio then for that one, maybe. Yeah, nice. Uh, my pick is the. Uh, I think it was actually technically just an Oyster Perpetual. I think it was an Oyster Perpetual before the Explorer was the Explorer. Uh, it's the watch that Hillary wore to the summit of Mount Everest in 1953. Very cool. That exact watch is at, uh, I think it's Bayer in um, Zurich, Switzerland. Hudinke have done a few pieces on them, and they've got every notable Rolex you could think of. Um, Hans Wolof gift, gift, gifted a watch to um, one of the main men at, at Bayer, I think, at the time, and it's got his, his signature on the back. So, but, but this one was actually worn to the summit of Everest in 1953 wow. and technically inspired to the Explorer. So I'll I'll take that with me to Everest. I probably like Ben probably use my camera just so I know. I, I think that's probably a good shout. I know what I'm doing with it. Um and I would take a series of pictures up Everest with the watch. At the summit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean oh at least, you know, near near but Everest. Base camp would do. Sure. Base camp maybe. If, can we get a helicopter up there or something? That might be a bit extreme. I I think, you know, like You'd have to push the boat out on this photo shoot, but why not? Yeah, I think in this to. in this um, extravagant world we're coming up with ourselves in this in this dreamy scenario, I'll, I'll somehow just be able to get up there relatively easily and get some hopefully interesting pictures of it. W- would it be a sort of like like you know? Would it be similar to your U fifty shot except with snow instead of sand? Or would you you know? Would you have I think a, a few of those. Yeah, I think that'd be good. I think we need someone else there with a wrist. I can I can use as a bit of a wrist model. Um, a claw. A claw. I'd have to remember the claw. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Maybe wear a hat as well. Wouldn't, wouldn't, I guess I guess maybe he wore it on the outside of a vest or something. Wouldn't it have been freezing? A sort of like steel bracelet. Uh, or uh, did I think he have it, leather? I think bracelet? it was on a leather strap. Leather yeah. strap. Leather yeah. strap. Yeah, that's the move. Because otherwise you get frostbite of the wrist or whatever yeah. it's called. So if anyone's frostbite going up of the leather <laughs> strap. <laughs> if anyone's going up Everest in the near future, make sure you wear a leather strap. Yeah, that's great advice. Solid advice. Look, you only hear it from here. <laughs> that has been the uh, Time to Unwind podcast. Uh, and we've enjoyed talking to you about photography. We hope you've got some 
useful information out of all this silliness. Um, I certainly have, actually. Um, and we look forward to next time. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Cheers, Anthony. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Time to Unwind podcast. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. So please leave your ratings of the show through your podcast app. And be sure to reach out on social media, at WatchGecko, with your thoughts. Adding a rating and a comment really does help the podcast, so we'd be grateful for your support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.